0: But I think there's also, you know, that negative perception about, you know, black fathers not being in home, or black fathers don't want to be in home mm. or don't care. Look,
1: the biggest podcast where you can learn them lessons. Line for line where you can learn from different sections. Made it out the mud, come tell your story, blessings. Never know who listening, never know who's stressing. Vaughn gave you a voice, can speak your honest truth Line for line, go bar for bar, it's up to you Wanna talk sports, gov, and politics Wanna talk about where you from and your accomplishments The line for line is really where you need to be A platform that's really made for folks like you and me You can find it all no matter what you seek Whether you calling or you listening, tune in every week all right, we're back in another episode of Line, Line We have a very special segment today. This is for our black history, you know. Kenosha has a great of hi- I can't talk for some reason. Kenosha has great history, you know. And who else to be a better tour guy than a legendary man himself,
0: Brandon Morris, man. How you feeling? Man, I'm feeling great. You know, beautiful Saturday morning. No yes, yeah, sir.
1: Yes, yeah, sir. Now, you know what, why you're here. You're here for some black history. Just take us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up in Kenosha and what our culture was like then, what obviously, around basketball for someone like you.
0: Yep. Uh, so growing up in Kenosha on the south side in the Lincoln Park neighborhood, there's a lot of rich history. Mm-hmm. And before I even get to Kenosha, I obviously have to talk about so many families coming from the south mm-hmm. migrating to the north. So my family in particular uh, coming up from Arkansas, and I guess one somebody in our family um, – hearing about there's work up here and they're hiring black folks (laughs) um in the factories uh which is america motors yeah you know once somebody get a job and then it's all right we're gonna go back down and get cousin we're gonna go back down and get auntie Mm -hmm. we're gonna go back down and get big mama and then eventually everybody just started migrating north because obviously the living Uh, and the living wage was just much better here up north Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how I think things started for us in Kenosha and obviously you got neighbors in the south so if you were my neighbor I'm gonna tell you look they hiring us up north and the treatment um when you know the 60s or the 50s 70s and 80s um the treatment was so much different just mm-hmm. for black families. Very so, pivotal part. Hey, let's go up to Kenosha because they hiring black folks up there, and uh, we're making a decent living wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would just pass that word on to you, and then you tell your family, and now y'all coming up here to check out the scene, and then you getting a job. So a lot of the Lincoln Park neighborhood, that's what it looked like because when you purchase a home, whether you're renting or you're buying you're like man, and the cost of living ain't so bad up here either. Mm-hmm. They actually letting us buy and own homes. So now I tell you, and then you move up here. So it just kind of keep branching off like that. Now when I look back to my upbringing uh, in the eighties, my grandmother lived here. My grandmother's sister lived around the corner on fifteenth. We lived on sixty eighth. My great grandmother she lived on fourteenth. Um. And then my auntie, uh, my grandmother's sister, a great auntie, she lived upstairs on 14th. So all of our family was right around this area. And then there were others that moved up from Arkansas who lived on 14th, on 15th, on 16th, on 17th. And that was the community that we knew we loved um, and then there are there are others who kind of had that same type of story, family living in the south and then coming up mm-hmm. to the north, uh, particularly Kenosha. And you know, again, so much rich history. And I wanted to just bring that that moment or that part of history up because that's where we came from, mm-hmm. growing up in the south and then coming to nor- to the north for many different reasons. So. I think we always forget to tell those parts when it comes to black history, specifically in Kenosha. Exactly.
1: And just touching back on that, obviously I'm only twenty eight years old, so I don't I wasn't around back then, but it's like that's when it was a much simpler time for us as a people and culture as well too, you know? Yeah. You had the dads in a home. Yeah. You had the dads working, manning the family. And back then one man can take care of the family off of one income. You know, yep. he goes to work at the factory, has a nice little car, has a yep. house. The wife stays at home, makes the kids go to school and everything yep. like that. But now times are getting more difficult for us as a people as well too. And it's just not like that, right. that close knit circle family esque area that you live in as well too. Right. What do you think was the reason that like a lot of that
0: just like got taken away? I think there's, you know, there's so many things that play a role in that. Um, there's so many systems that play a role in that. Mm-hmm. When you think about welfare, um and how folks benefited from welfare. Um like in Chicago, this I think this is where it started. So don't quote me on don't don't quote <laughs> me on this. <laughs> but you couldn't accept the welfare if you didn't if you had a the man or the father in oh, the wow. home. Oh wow. Right. So in order to get that assistance from the state, dad had to leave the house, Yeah, you know, for the time being when, you know, welfare or whomever that system or that service came into the home to check on the home. And so if they're saying we're going to show up on Thursday or Friday, pop's got to leave the crib, <laughs> Right it's not what like you said it, yeah, yeah, yeah he gotta yeah. leave the crib on He gotta leave the crib Thursday early morning <laughs> right? <laughs> that's real talk <laughs> so you gotta leave the crib early Thursday morning and if they are gonna come by on Friday you got to be gone Friday too yeah so what are the days that they get paid sometimes Thursday sometimes Friday right. so that payday is around that time okay you gonna go to work Maybe get off work, can't go to the crib. Maybe he's by his brother's house. Wherever he is, he's not in his home. Not the tennis, the bar as well, too. Just- so that's what I was going to mention, too, because yeah. you get that payday. Mm-hmm. And and then that just leads to other things, right? So it's the system that kind of created that You know, father out of the home. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that can snowball into so many things from drinking to drugs. Yes, very right? true. And then when you're under the influence, you don't make the best decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you make a decision that led you into the prison system, in in, in jail. Now you're like almost permanently taken out of the home. Mm Mm-hmm. And that just, it's just a trickle down effect. And they're from still this. making money off of you as well, too. So, uh, man, yeah. That, so, like I said, that can go on and on and on um, <laughs> as to how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's also, you know, that negative perception about, you know, black fathers not being in the home or black fathers don't want to be in the home mm-hmm. or don't care about their kids and so on. That's just something that was like a cause and effect of the system that was put in place.
1: Exactly. So it's very hard to be broken as well, too. So now you now you got to try to explain that. But then people don't really want to hear that. So it's like a lose lose. If you ask, you know, it's just like as a black man, I wake up every day and just say, make sure I'm doing my best to contribute to society. Make sure I'm contributing to my family as well, too. Making sure my image is positive as well, too, just so they can say there are different people out there. There's people who are willing to put in that hard work and break stigmas and break barriers, you know. And that's why I wanted to do this Black History Month project for my podcast to really give people a part of the culture and things that I go through outside of the podcast and like my day-to-day life as well, too, you know? Yeah. And that's definitely why I wanted a legend like you, on, so we could just talk about the culture of black people and black Kenosha as well, too, you know? Yeah. yeah. So bringing us back to the history of Kenosha, when was it when you saw the shift of the culture when it comes to basketball in our community and culture?
0: Uh, So ever since I can remember, um, I was the young Young lad at Lincoln Park watching a lot of those games that, mm-hmm. that took place. I can remember walking behind my mom, and you remember the the very first Jordans, the originals, the first Jordans, originals. Yeah, the ones, the, the, right? The band, yeah, yep. the the ones that got banned. My mom had those because she was a she was a baller, but she had them. They used to tie them in a knot and then put them over their shoulders. Mm-hmm. So I can remember walking down to Lincoln Park behind my mom dribbling my basketball with her shoes over her strap. I could just remember, I could see it, like, you know, me looking up at her shoulder, and she got the Jordans hanging over. Mm -hmm. Not even thinking 30 years later (laughs) that it was going to be a big deal with those shoes. Mm -hmm. So, But I could just remember walking down to the park and seeing those shoes and then watching these different guys play and, you know, the trash talk, the love, the – It was just a serious vibe, Mm -hmm. right? And life goes on. You know, I get older, and I'm still following these players. And then there was a time where there was a team called the JB Auto. Yeah. Men's basketball team. So this was the premier team for me and in our black culture Mm -hmm. because it had all of the best of the best players playing on that team. That's awesome. And it was just so fun to watch those guys play in the different tournaments and the leagues and to follow them around, yeah, because they were just electrifying and, and for me, and I feel like for for the culture uh they were able to express through basketball what black culture was here in Kenosha. Mm-hmm. Anybody that that talks about you know basketball here in Kenosha, you got to bring up J.B. Auto because they were dominant. I mean, they had some of the best of the best players that came through Kenosha at some point play on that team. Oh wow, yeah, and that team has been going um, since probably like 1994, and it kind of it kind of it was created off of um, you know a couple of different pieces. Like if I joined the team and then I brought. My guy with me, and then we started playing and maybe we weren't winning enough games. And like, dude, let's bring the other fellas on this team because yeah. <laughs> they shouldn't be playing over there. We should all be playing together. So from what I've heard, that's kind of how that team was created. Uh, Vinji, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Chili kind of made that team, which is Vinji Washington,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, if I got his name correct he kind of created that team and then it just branched off and it eventually became where Tony Moore took it over and um, just turned it into what we now know as the Kenosha ballers. Um, But when you talk about that history and in basketball and black culture here in Kenosha, Man, I used to watch this team and just want to be like these dudes, specifically the Beffer twins. Oh, look um, at you knowing twin, Dwayne yeah, and them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody mentions, you know, the Walt G's. They mention the Al Steele's, uh, Latif Reza, Bosque. Um, They mention all those guys. But for me, being a little guy, a little kid, watching them sweeping the floors and doing the scoreboard sometimes, I was always watching the the Beffer twins, because these dudes play defense like crazy. Yeah. The whole team played defense. They were all about defenses. Totally different than it is now where everybody's about offense. <laughs> looking good. Right. This team, they specifically play serious defense where they were picking you up 94 feet. Oh, wow. And that's where a lot of my game came from, the little bits and pieces of each one of those players. Mm. So for me, when I was growing up, I was like, okay, you got to play defense. And if you ever got to see the Twins play in the 90s, I mean, it was just like poetry because they moved so fast. And then they also had kind of like a – I mean, we would call it like tricks or a little bit of showboating, but they did it with class at the same time. (laughs) And it was just – I mean, it was just amazing to watch mesmerizing for me as a youngster to see how fast they were to play defense and to be effective – without even having a jumper. I've never seen these guys shoot jumpers ever. Just straight to the cup? All layups. But they had players around them that could get them the ball. And that's what made them so special. I'm like, wow, these dudes haven't shot a jumper. They play great defense. And sometimes they would walk away as tournament MVP. Wow. Without even shooting a jumper. Um, But they were just phenomenal to watch. And and that's when I really fell in love with the – the, the the you know the black basketball culture here in Kenosha watching JB specifically the Beffer twins.
1: Mm-hmm. Now we know we can't limit it to like who's the best, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But obviously when it does come to our culture and black history, when it comes to Kenosha and basketball, yeah, there's obviously the Nick Van Exel's of the world that are yep. constantly brought up because yep. obviously he was able to go and do it on a larger scale, taking yep. it to the Lakers, Mavericks, so so on just tell us a little bit about what it was like in that era, being able to be next to someone who would go on to be great without you even knowing that this person was going to be great and
0: impact the culture that you're a part of as well. Yeah. So there's so much history there too. Um, So my mom and Van Exo's uh, auntie, Didi, they are best friends. Okay. So as a youngster, I was able to be around Van Exel when he was in college. And I can remember if I fast forward I can remember when he, I don't know, sometime he was playing, I don't know what team he was playing for but he was like, dude, you know you used to be a, the biggest crybaby ever. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, why you say that? He was like, dude you was always crying. Because he had to babysit us when my mom and A.T. And Didi would be, would go to the store or go out or whatever. So he would babysit me, um, Satara, Bud, and then my sister, Simone. Mm -hmm. And he was calling me the biggest crybaby because he got into that car accident and his mouth got sold up. Oh no. So me as a little kid seeing somebody with a mouth sold up and he running around chasing you and, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Dude, yeah, I used to be crying (laughs) and running away from this dude. So, Um, but, like you said, to think about you know somebody that affects the basketball culture just an amazing way and have put many people in um some very great situations um whether they they you know built it up or or maybe couldn't make something of those situations um man that's some that's some really rich history, yeah, um yeah, I guess. You don't even notice it. You don't even take it in or you don't even take into account, you know, the relationships that, you know, someone has with a person not thinking like, okay, this person is going to be this successful. Um, but then, you know, I get older, graduate from college, playing pro, and then being able to, to even live with an extra for a while um, down in Houston and just having these conversations about Kenosha, having the conversations about when we were when we were younger, and you know him babysitting us, and then talking about basketball, and, and you know what's the next steps, and mm-hmm. who's the best at the career right now, and all those different types of things. Um, you know, I guess you, you probably take for granted um, at, at, now that I look back on it, but those were you know special moments leading all the way up until, you know, me being 38 years old right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, My dude, my dude. So just tell us a little about pieces of the culture from back then
1: that you used to implement into your coaching strategies and just your day-to-day life now
0: as a person that's part of the culture. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I like to call it school of the hard knocks. Um, following those JB players, one thing that I noticed right away that – these guys played hard every minute, and they loved each other. Mm-hmm. It was like it was like a serious brotherhood. I thought all these cats was related all this time. <laughs> Me, a little fella, seeing them and just seeing how they laugh and joke and um, challenging each other, just having each other's back. Um, it was just like wow! I thought all these cats was related, like brothers and cousins and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, But dang, I lost my train of thought. Your question again?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm reminiscing too much. It's just how you use bits and pieces of the culture from back then, implementing it into your coaching
0: strategies in your life now. Yeah. So I really took, uh, you know, just toughness, toughness from, you know, that culture in the 90s and being a defensive first team. Um, And then just being extremely disciplined. Man, getting so many bits and pieces from those different players, uh, even like La Beffer, Luanzo, excellent, excellent you point you know guard. my guy La, that's yeah. my dude. Excellent point guard, lefty. A lot of people don't mention him, but he has so much knowledge about the game. He, he used to tell me and break it down to me about assist. I didn't even know what assists really were. Oh, wow. Yeah, but it was him, and I remember Mark Duckworth, who's from Racine, played at St. Cats and coached at St. Cats, got a lot of state championships. But they were just breaking it down to me one day, and I was like maybe sixth grade, seventh grade, I don't know. Um, but they were breaking it down to me about being or dishing out assist and how much that was important or and how you can dominate the game from there. Mm-hmm. So that's what I bring into uh, you know my coaching nowadays is just being a uh, you know extremely tough player be defensive minded and then again love each other have fun with the game and figure out how to create a shot for your teammates yes sir cuz everybody can score anybody can score right but how do you create shots for your teammates
1: but how how can these players do that though if all they're showing on SportsCenter, whatever the case may be, all that's being talked about on Instagram is the scoring of the basketball, how many shots they shot, how far they can shoot their for, how do they get back into the fundamentals of a game if the assists, as you say, those aren't the sexy, pretty pretty stats.
0: I, I think it really comes down to being a student of the game. Mm-hmm. When you really think about it, you got to give some credit to Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's hit a lot of threes. But if you take out the three-pointers that he shoots in every game and you see what he does in between the three-point and the basket, it's really special. Mm -hmm. And that's being a student of the game. That's going to take some work. When you see, when you talk about nobody, I mean, some people are saying, oh, he don't handle the ball. This dude got crazy handles. I think he got just as much handles as Kyrie. Mm -hmm. Kyrie might make his more fancier where people will ooh and ah over (laughs) it, right? But Steph Curry, he got the same type of handles as Kyrie Irving, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So if you look what he does inside the three and to the basket, I mean, he affects the game in so many different ways from the mid-range to just keeping the dribble and then creating the assists. But all of those things, like you said, are not sexy. It's not glorified. It's not what you see. Mm -hmm. So I think what I would tell players that are looking to, like, really take their game to the next level, be a student of the game and maybe nitpick from one to two to three players of what they do really good. Right, take that part out and look at the other parts of what they, what you did, what you don't focus on. When you do that, and then you try to add that to your game, I think the growth will be far greater than what you were doing before that.
1: It'll take a wise one to really (laughs) see that. Seriously, it'll (laughs) take a wise one to see that. And people in his ear being able to say, "This is," I'm telling you, "This is the route. This is the route."
0: And I think another thing you you got to be okay with some really true authentic people call it harsh criticism or feedback about you yourself as a player and then also take that as a challenge to for you to get better a lot of kids in my opinion and I'm and I guess I'm considered old school now but a lot of my kid a lot of kids I feel like and maybe it's more so the parents, but they don't like that, that real assessment, that real talk, that real live, like I will critique your game and it's not taken away from anything you've done. It's not taken away from any parts of your game and what you've been doing well, but it's really just to challenge you to take your game to the next level. Mm-hmm. And folks don't always want to hear that. Folks want to hear that their kids are good, their kids are the best, their kids are division 1, they're going to have a chance to play pro. That's what they want to hear. They don't want to hear the other things. In all honesty, and that's just my opinion, I could be totally wrong. Mm-hmm. But a lot of <laughs> a lot of data shows, you know, that I just that I kept anecdotally in my head that People don't want to hear the other things that should be making them or taking their game to the next level.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, as a person who's still an active coach as well, too, how is it that you plan to be more cultured when it comes to leaving your mark on basketball in such a great city with such a rich
0: history of basketball? Ooh. So that's extremely difficult because folks only judge you off of wins. Oh, wow. Wow. They, bit, yeah. Yeah, they only judge you off of wins. You're only great if you win and you win at a high level and you win consistently, which I agree with. Um, and in high school basketball, you as a coach, you get judged off of strictly off of your wins, right? Because there can be a four-year stretch where you have, a lot of talent come through your school and you can play really well and do well. And everybody can think that that specific coach is a really good coach. He knows what he's doing. Four years later, that coach cannot have that same talent come through that school and he don't win as much. And then all of a sudden it becomes, man, that coach don't know what he's doing. He don't know (laughs) how to coach. He ain't even letting them players play. And so on, so you talk about leaving my mark as a coach uh, in the history um that's a, that's extremely difficult because again, you only get judged off of off of your wins. Mm-hmm. so what I just hope is that uh the players that play for me. Whether they don't whether they get it by the time they get in college or leave out of college or become an adult is that they always or that they figure out that man coach morris he he challenged us when we were in high school he always had our best interest at heart, whether I didn't see it as a high school player um and he would, he, he would always fight for what was best for me as a player or mm-hmm. for our team. He wanted us to win, and not just win at basketball, but win at life. Yes, sir. Now, as we get ready to close out
1: this phenomenal episode, there's a question that, that has been on my brain as well, too, just knowing the history of fights being at the games back in the day, there being like all-out brawls where games were getting canceled and things like that. As a coach, how is it that you handle your personnel, whether it's your roster and coaches as well, too, if things were to get a little bit uneasy at the game, whether it's the, fr- whether it's the crowd or the players on the court?
0: Um, that's a great question. Um, so, obviously, there's no coach that I know of, and I'll say I'll even be more personal. There, for me and, and, and my coaching staff, we don't want any of our players to fight mm-hmm. Ever it's just it's just not a good look it does nothing for the game of basketball um it does nothing for you know that 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 kid as a person it does nothing for his family nobody we we yeah we we would we don't condone fighting we don't promote fighting or anything like that and I don't think any coaches ever do um so we can only take care of what we can take care of right so we can tell our players every single day, every minute of the practice, all throughout, like no fights, no this, no that. But those players are still going to make decisions on their own when it comes to a particular moment. Mm-hmm. What we hope is that they took everything we said into consideration and refrained from that. That's not always the case. Um, so, what we try to do is one protect all of our players mm-hmm. uh and we keep that at the at the front of everything. The safety of our players are important. one protect yourself, two stay safe and once we know that all of our players are safe, that's when we you know we feel better about anything else moving forward. The safety of our players is what's most important, and if our players, you know, aren't safe, then you know we're going to be uneasy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fighting is is not something that any coach that I can think of want, condone, promote I- any of those things. But safety
1: is is what's key. Yes, sir. That being said, we just wrapped up an amazing episode. For our Kenosha Black History episode, we appreciate you for coming through, sir. Appreciate you. You calling or you listening? Tune in every week. Lifeline. Oh, yeah, I'm going Lifeline.